This episode of Wax Lyrical was made on the land of the Wurundjeri people. We pay respect to elders of the past and the present. Thirty thousand years, the Wurundjeri managed this land, no issues, for over thirty thousand years. I'm Algal Blooms, and this episode is about what lies under the surface. Several times a week, I take a walk eastward to Darabin Parklands. The path is concrete and slim. On your right, abandoned factories and industry barbed wire, concrete, and sloppy territorial tags. A bin hanging upside down from a gum, a hill's hoist on top of a fence post, and on your left, the soothing babble of the creek. A wall of flowering aeonium sit placidly down a sheer cliff, and a gigantic dead cactus yellow and psychedelic. The aroma of a silver wattle in flower. A cyclist shums past with the barest nod. Past the sign warning of flooding and snakes and into the parklands. I encounter a calming landscape of gentle hills, ponds, and waddling ducks, water slopping lazy against the shoreline. It's a place of great beauty, and other people think so too. Couples lay about, soaking in sun. Dogs bound and frolic, kids screech. I found out that the beauty of the park held a queer secret, and that its functional purpose under its lovely surface, was fascinating and beautiful in another way. The head ranger, Peter Wiltshire, described it as a water treatment facility disguised as a bushland park. He sat down on a rock in the park to tell me more about this place. You want to put this in your pocket? Pocket, pocket. Clip that. Close to speaking. Oh, all this going. Yep, that's good. Oh, all this going. That's good. Oh, all this going. That's good. Darwin Parklands, let's talk about Darwin Parklands. Let's go back. 30,000 years, the Wurundjeri managed this land. No issues. For over 30,000 years, 
And then um, in 1838, Hoddle came through here and uh, surveyed the area. Land was uh, sold to speculators. The Batman Treaty was uh, conducted with the head man of the Wurundjeri, and they, you know, got they, the Wurundjeri thought they were leasing the land out. They didn't think they were giving it to the to people for a couple of blankets and stuff. So. Uh, and once, once the land got in the hand of European pioneers, at first it was used for, uh, to provide food, for, you know, to, to make market gardens, to provide you know, a yield of, of produce, because you know, there was no, it wasn't like you could just shoot down a local shop and get yourself a bunch of celery. If you wanted it, you had to grow it. Well, one we thought they were leasing the land out. They didn't think they were giving it to the to people for a couple of blankets and stuff. Celery. It wasn't like you could just shoot down a local shop and get yourself a bunch of celery. You know. So that was the first initial use, and once those sort of farming practices have been established and been successful, uh, other branches of uh, land use were, were um, available. And one of the things that happened at Darabin Parklands, which makes it fairly significant, is that it's on the geological boundary of Melbourne. And you've got the Darabin Creek separating 460 million year old Silurian sandstone on one side, and on the other side, you've got 860,000 year old quaternary basalt, a volcanic rock. So you've got these two geologies. Well, the basalt uh, could be uh, mined. And so one of, the, uh, one of the pioneers of this area recognised that if he quarried out the volcanic side of the parklands, uh, he could sell his, use the land for another profit-making venture rather than growing food, selling the actual rock that was in the site. And that mine uh, was called the uh, Adams Quarry and it, uh, it went through for about 40 years and then was bought out by a company called Albion Reed and then finally bought out by Borrell. But the extensive mining and quarrying went on for 70 years, from 1890 through to 1960, at which point the, the parklands around the 1960s was then urban wasteland. The creeks were seen as places uh, to get water to stop flooding, to, to drain the suburbs. So the state government industries looked at, Mal looked at the Darabin Creek. They used to call it, I think it was Drain A18. It wasn't the Darabin Creek, it was Drain A18. And this brings into to line around the 60s, you had this big quarry hole that was empty. Uh, it was slowly filling up with water because the, the aquifers were still draining into the hole, but it was a wasteland. It was just an open cut hole. No one was using it. And, uh, and the other areas of the parkland were basically wasteland. They were just, you know, it was horse adjustment. There was, you know, it wasn't used for recreation at all. So what happened is that we come back to the creek. 
And in, in the 60s and 70s, the Melbourne Water decided to trapezoidal zone all Melbourne's creeks, which is to, you know, create a drainage shape, uh, change the natural geomorphology of the creek to enable water to move through fast. In some cases, they concreted them, like in Mooney Ponds Creek. Yeah, there it's totally concreted. And they learnt all this from the Americans. The Americans did it to the Los Angeles River. It's famous for you know car chases and you know, movies. They use it all the time. This big concrete pit where water moves through. Well, you know this this was the way of the, the state government. So they saw the creeks as um, drains, and they called all the surrounding lands. Uh, they called it floodplain alienation, and so that meant that the you couldn't build on it because of the possibility of floods. But the idea was to make sure that water could move through as fast as possible. So if there were any trees along the creek, anything that could block the, the flow of water, they were whipped out. But jumping back, to, so this is all happening. So the parklands on one side, you've got the quarry, there's empty quarry hole, and you've got all this uh, trapezoidal zoning going along, Mel along Melbourne's creeks. So what happens is that in the, going back to the quarry hole, well, the Northcote councils, you know, they, nothing turns a council on more than a hole in the ground. Nothing turns a council on more than a hole in the ground. They love a good hole in the ground.
So what they saw is, you know, the, 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 turn it into an old-fashioned landfill tip. So in 1965, they put in an application and asked if they could, you know, lease the land for a, for a quarry, uh, for a tip, beg your pardon. And as a result, in 1968, they were granted that, that permit from the state government and they, they leased the land off Burrell. And what took 70 years to dig out, they took six years to fill up with rubbish. Rubbish, rubbish. And what took 70 years to dig out, they took six years to fill up with rubbish. Until 1972, and the quarry opened in 1968. So for three quarters of its life, there was no oversight on what went into the quarry. And the legacy of those decisions are now affecting the land now. And that's why we're here, to manage the wastewater that comes out of it. Meantime, going back to the trapezoidal zoning that Melbourne uh, Border Works were doing, which is now Melbourne Water, they had done most of the Darabin Creek and in the, in, the, oh, in the late 60s, they came to Darabin Parklands and they brought their bulldozers down and uh, were preparing to trapezoidal zone the creek. They actually did sections, little sections of it. But every Tuesday, two women used to come down to the parklands and sit down underneath a weeping willow tree and with their children and have a bit of a gossip and a bit of a chat and they used the land, you know, regularly like this. And one day, these two ladies came down and saw these machines push over the weeping willow that they were, wanted to sit under. Those two women happened to be a woman called Sue Corse and another woman called Anthea Fleming. Both of them highly intelligent, highly motivated, visionary ladies ahead of their time but also with strong connections to Melbourne University as their husbands were lecturers at Melbourne University. But anyway, the wives uh, called their husbands quite distressed about what was happening in the creek and, and basically rung the, the premier of the day and got a stop put to the works. And as a result of that, the trapezoidal zoning of the lands at Darabin Creek didn't go ahead. So the Darabin Parklands in, uh, from Livingston Street onwards is still essentially uh, the way it was uh, prior to the trapezoidal zoning practices of Melwater in the 60s and 70s. Th this motivated particularly Sue Corse and her family to, uh, to, to, to rescue the land. She, she then saw that this, this wonderful piece of land here, she saw the beauty in it, she, saw that she had the vision of what it could possibly be. Even though there was a tip on the other side that was stinky and smelly, she could see the beauty in the land. And so she started uh, the Rock Bear Conservation Group with a local group of residents that lived naturally enough along Rock Bear Grove in Ivanhoe. And essentially they, those people, uh, were, were well connected, knew, her, knew who to ring. Uh, I, I say that. They managed to convince the Minister for Mines, Bill Bothwick, to come down, and he was Minister for Environment too, but it wasn't called Environment, those days was the Ministry of Forestry. He came down with his kids and they, they made him some um, uh, mulberry ice cream from the mulberry trees in the parklands 
and, and sort of sold the vision, standing amongst the blackberry and stuff, said, look what this could possibly be, and were clever enough to sell it. But it was, just wasn't those ladies that did it. The whole, a whole swag of Ivanhoe people came down saying, yes, this should be open space. Everyone was sort of in gear on that, but you still had the tip site on the other side. And the tip site was not council land, where the Banyul side, or the, the Silurian Sandstone side, the Ivanhoe side, more accurately, is owned by council. The, the other side of the parklands is owned by a private enterprise, Burrell. So what happened then is to, to, to create Darabin parklands, they needed to get the money to buy the land off Burrell, the old tip. They had to get the money, and they did. The Premier, uh, Sir Rupert Hamer, God bless him, he was a lovely bloke. He, he basically said to Northcote Council, I'll match you dollar for dollar, and, and, and you can buy the land and turn it into this parklands. And that's essentially what happened through the, the, through the persistence of these, these great residents that had such vision. The old tip. Borrow, 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 dollar for dollar, dollar for dollar, dollar for dollar. God bless him, he's a lovely bloke, he's a lovely bloke, he's a lovely bloke. I'll match you dollar for dollar. God bless him, he's a lovely bloke. And, uh, and then I took the position up in 1989 as uh, the, the senior ranger. And since that time, we've, we got the abatement notice on the, the tip site, which was the EPA uh, recognised that there was this this, this threat to the Darabin Creek from the contaminated waters that had come into the tip site via the aquifer. Uh, and as a result, there was uh, seepage into the Darabin Creek. And at this stage, uh, the Northcote Council didn't have a great deal of experience in uh, tip site management and leachate management in particular. And I was encouraged by the then town clerk to investigate methods of treating water. And my interest in treating water uh, was always strong. Water quality is always a passion of mine. 
So I, I examined how sewerage was treated. I looked at all methodologies from septic tanks to reed bed technology to bacterial filters to Japanese sand fills, all sorts of things. But in the end, we came up with the, a reed bed using activated carbon and uh, sediment ponds, uh, conical shaped sediment ponds and, and ballast to control heavy metals. And we built a treatment system. We got, just when we, we, we uh, designed this thing, along came Je a premier called Jeff Kennett. And Jeff Kennett decided it would be a good idea to affect everyone's life in Victoria. So the first thing he did is he sacked all the councils and appointed commissioners. And in doing so, he, he got rid of the politics in local government and it was a breath of fresh air. Conical shaped sediment ponds and, and ballast to control heavy metals. Ponds and a breath of fresh air. And one of the things the, the commissioners had to do was identify risk to the municipality, the new formed municipalities. One of the liabilities that got the commissioners' attention was our leachate problem because it was going to be long term. It's going to be the next 50 to 100 years. And so they, they said, what, what's been done about it? And they said, well, there's, there's, there's a funny looking, hippie looking dude that works down at Darabin Parklands. He's come up with a design to build a water treatment system. It'll probably cost half a million dollars. And they go, all right, let's have a look at it. A hippie looking dude, dude. And they go, all right, let's have a look at it, dude. So they hired a company called GHD, uh, uh, a worldwide engineering company, to come and investigate my plan. And they came and had a look at it and tweaked it a little and said, yeah, that should work. Okay, and next thing we got $310,000 allocated to us and we started building it. And we built the system, which is now in the parklands, which in, also includes the infamous Mount Puffalo, which is uh, 900 truckloads of soil brought from the Domain Tunnel uh, underneath the Yarra. And we used that to cover the, the rubbish that we dug up uh, when we were building the wetlands on the old tip site. So one of, the, one of our claims to fame uh, is that we were the first place in Australia to build lakes or ponds or wetlands on, uh, on a tip site.
This is a recording done at dusk at Pobblebonk, in the heart of the Darabin Parklands. Pobblebonk is a wetland co-designed by Peter Wiltshire and Nature. Its purpose is to create a place for the Pobblebonk frog, native to southeast Australia. So named because its distinct call sounds like a banjo string being plucked. The spot where the parklands sit is traditionally the land of the Wurundjeri Willem, meaning white gum tree dwellers. Up the creek a bit, near Bandura Park, was a Wurundjeri Willem meeting place, where clans conducted ceremonies, traded and organised marriages. Going back, going back, Going back, so the leachate system's working nicely now. The, most of the punters that walk around the park now have got no awareness of the fact that the parklands is uh, a water treatment facility disguised as a bushland park. They've got yeah. no idea. No idea. No idea. And uh, no. one of the things that makes us laugh is that um, you know, a lot of people get married at the parklands, and a lot of the wedding photography is done on a thing called the Reese Bridge which is a bridge we just put up for fun. It doesn't comply to any standard, but it's actually the aerator for the leachate. So it's an aeration, uh, it's a functioning part of the water treatment and they um, use it to get their photos on it. And we sit there and say, should we tell them? Would that, you know? Another example is that there's a sculpture in the parklands called The Nest. It's a four metre tall wooden egg uh, made of uh, bricks of wood, of cypress and uh, spotted gum, from a uh, uh, demolished church in Malvern. Uh, uh, the artist David Bell and Gary Tippett did it. And it's a, it's a strange, you know, it's strange big four metre, ten tonne wooden egg. and. Um, and it represents uh, Bunjil, the eagle of the Wurundjeri. It's, it's the egg of Bunjil. So, so one of the ironic things is, is that, you know, here we are putting this tribute to the Wurundjeri, the original owners of the land here. And we're putting this big tribute thing to them on a tip site. How would they respond to that? And the interesting thing was, is that when we approached them and said, you, you know, you realise this is an old tip and you know, it's got some problems, they just liked the land. And as a result, we've got Australia's only spiritual healing trail here, which is a Koori uh, innovation uh, brought, set here by uh, Reg Blow, the late Reg Blow and Daxic put it here. And now Uncle Trevor Gallagher is our custodian of the uh, spiritual healing trail, which attracts over 10,000 people a year. And uh, so we've got, we've got some really good things to brag about. Tippett did it. Tippett did it. The other thing is we were the first place in Australia to accept early learning or bush kinder. We we're the first park in Australia to, to take on the risk of bush kinder. And, um, and that's worked out to be an Australia-wide success story now. But it, it also a statement on society that in the days when I was growing up, we didn't need bush kinder because when we used to 
we used to play outside and, <laughs> and do things. Now these days, you know, parents multi-coddle their kids a little. Bush kinder. We used to play outside. Bush kinder. And uh, so bush kinders are where kids can get stung by bees, climb and fall out of trees and do all the things that you know, we've done in the past. And hopefully it'll stop all the allergies that are going on, you know, peanut allergy and all this sort of stuff, because there's evidence to say that it's that, that parenting technique that is, is adding to the fact that kids aren't eating dirt like we used to. We build up our immune system. Uh, 
the charm of the park's still there, you know. So it's a park founded by people. It's been one of the most, as a piece of land, it has been abused, it's been used for all sorts of things. It's had its, its parent geology dug out of it. It's been used as a tip, which is like, to, you know, saying it's been a rubbish bin for society. And now it's blossomed into this lovely bushland park with, uh, with creatures, uh, big and small. Their big issue at the moment is turtles. All the long-necked turtles, they lay their eggs and the foxes dig them up. And there are so many foxes here that the turtles are slowly disappearing, which is quite distressing. And we can't do anything about it because the major tool is uh, baiting. And, and if we bait, we're going to kill someone's pet because people won't put their dogs on leads, no matter what we do. So that's, 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 that's a reflection of an urban park ranger having a moan about sharing his land with the, with the public. Public use the land for all sorts of things, you know. Some people come here to sunbake, some people come here to walk their dogs, some people come here to, you know, unwind after hard day at work, some people come here to pick flowers. That's, that's, that's a reflection of an urban park ranger having a moan. The future of the parklands, in particular the leachate treatment system, the water treatment system, one of the things we can't control is that the, the leachate's slowly getting more, the salinity in the leachate's increasing uh, every summer. To, there will be a point when uh, the, the ponds will become so saline that the, that the only thing they'll be able to live on them is extremophiles and they are a, they are a, weird, a sort of weird looking creature, generally pink. It's a sort of pink bacterial algae uh, that uh, it, it is, you can see on a lot of uh, saline ponds around uh, the world. But in Melbourne we've got West Cape Park that does it, turns pink. That's what the future is for Darabin Parklands, it will have pink lakes. So as I, as I said to the council, my recommendation is that they, in about 150 years, get themselves some flamingos and, uh, and because they eat the extremophiles which turns them pink.
Thank you very much for listening, guys. I hope you liked Peter. In two weeks, we'll be back with the suave tonight's producer at the helm. I'll leave you with a word from Roald Dahl's My Uncle Oswald. A tompion. A small pellet made out of mud and saliva, which a bear inserts into its anus before hibernating for the winter to stop the ants getting in. Nothing turns a council on more than a hole in the ground. They love a good hole in the ground. And what took 70 years to dig out, they took six years to fill up with rubbish. It wasn't like you could just shoot down a local shop and get yourself a bunch of celery, you know. God bless him, he was a lovely bloke.